0: Uh, any questions from the last time we were together? We are now at, we're in the middle of 234 is where we are. And we we basically talked mostly about the commentary, but what we didn't talk about was the three words, craving, anger, and infatuation. I wanted to spend just a little more time sort of reflecting on what those words mean. Okay? I'm orienting everyone. Are there any other questions? Or, all right. Um, he says, com- feels, feels impelled to commit acts of violence, whether out of craving, anger, or infatuation. And then he says, whether mild, moderate, or severe. Um, violence in this sense, I think he just means violence against the truth. I don't think he necessarily means acts of violence, literally, although he, he can mean that. Um, I... I just thought it's worth thinking about. What, what Patanjali does is he takes the enormous complexity of delusion and of the human mind. Remember in the Bhagavad Gita, there are five Pandava brothers, but Duryodhana and his brothers are over a hundred of them. And our forces are very small and their forces are very huge. And so we're always being um, outsmarted by maya Because once we figure out one little way that Maya can sort of sneak in, then she comes around the back and gets us from another angle. So every time that Patanjali gives us one of these small lists and tells us that these are the forces that we have to look out for, it helps us not get um, confused by the details. Because we're likely to think that this situation is different because the last one involved other people, and this is me by myself, and this one was about past lives, and that one is about money, and, and so on like that. But he just says, acts of violence compelled by craving, anger, and infatuation. So, craving is obvious, and it is the antithesis, I would say, of contentment. Craving is when we are in one reality, And we simply wish to be in another reality. Whether we're craving a specific thing, a specific circumstance, but whatever it is, some part of us is not able to rest in the center and say this is exactly how God wants it to be. We want it, we we long for something else. When I asked Swami, as you may remember, about reincarnation, when he gave me the two forces that pull us into reincarnation, longing was one of them, regret was the other, but longing. And, and you can unravel it philosophically. If God is always with us, if everything is God's will, if karma is always fair, why would we ever crave for anything to be different than it is? But endlessly we have set up these vrittis in the spine in which some center point... We want to not have to put out so much energy. We don't want to get old. We want someone to care for us in a way that they don't. Or we want someone to stop caring for us in a way that they do. You know, it's Honol Cassidy, who was the man who was the gardener who taught us organic gardening at Ananda Village. He was a very sophisticated man in many, many ways. And one of his pronouncements was, the great tragedy of life is that A is in love with B, but B is in love with C, and C is in love with D. And he says, and the whole thing never gets itself straightened out. He just pronounces it from his ripe old years of 70 or so at that point, watching all of us uns run around, impelled to violence by cravings, <laughs> that uh, most of the time just never get resolved. And it's... Um, I think I I expressed to you the other day that I I just had this odd moment in my life, which was not so rare, but it was, I mean, the the restlessness it represented was not so rare, but the purity of the restlessness was intensely um, apparent to me, which is, well, I'll go back for just a second. When we first would take our pilgrimage trips to India, um, especially at the very beginning when it was all so new and so exciting and... Among the things that people discovered was how much fun stuff there was to buy. Going to the markets and finding all the... The the importing wasn't as... uh, The channels weren't as open as they are now. This was 30 years ago. so It was very exciting to buy stuff. And it got to be kind of a joke how much everyone was shopping. We're supposed to be on this pilgrimage and we're spending half our time shopping. And somebody said, oh, what are they buying? And someone else responded more <laughs> and that was just sort of summed it up perfectly. Well, I was just moving through my life, which was happened to be taking place at Chaila Bhava on that particular afternoon, and I was intensely aware of the fact, I guess you would call it, I was aware of the opposite of contentment. I just felt that I needed something and there was nothing that I could articulate. I wasn't sleepy, I wasn't hungry, I wasn't too hot, I wasn't too cold, I wasn't thirsty. I was just discontent. And there was this sort of nameless hunger. I I would like to say it was hunger for divine bliss. Maybe it was. But it was just more like an awareness of the everyday state of craving. I'll use that word that we live in all the time. But because we're constantly satisfying it in one way or another we don't realize how perpetual it is. Um, I have a friend who's been in prison for many decades now and I often compare whatever I'm going through to what it would be like to be in prison where you have how many millions of cravings you can't do anything about. I mean, your options are this wide and that's the end of it. I was talking today about being in solitary confinement, not being in seclusion, but in solitary confinement just alone with your own consciousness. Where, where would you go? What would you do? I remember reading, I believe it was in Corrie Ten Boom's, it was probably in Corrie Ten Boom's book, when she was imprisoned by herself for a period of time in the cycle when she was arrested by the Nazis as a, a one who helped the Jews in England, in uh, Holland. And she talked about being alone in her cell and she was, she they were, she was pulling this red towel apart and embroidering um, designs on some, something else. You'll just have something to do because she was just there for so many hours. And an ant came out of its hole and she said, she immediately put down the sewing because you really didn't want to waste two events. And so she, she spent the whole time just watching the ant because there was, this was all the entertainment there was and didn't pick up the sewing until the ant was gone from her world. You know, but we're always just feeling restless and moving. Even from thought to thought, we're moving. And so it's very hard for us not to act The violence is the way he puts it, but to act against the truth because we're made restless by the things that we want that we don't have. And we've talked about it from the other side, talking about contentment as a supreme virtue. Um, and this is just putting another point on it. Um... Well, he's actually giving us a way to fight against these things, but he's more saying, once these desires drive us to do something, that's what we talked about last week. Then the second one is anger. And in the Gita, it talks about anger is the result of thwarted desire. When you don't get what you want, you get angry about it. Just as simple as that, isn't it? And we're always getting angry in in large or small ways. I mean, I myself sometimes with my computer just... Couldn't cooperate with me. I just get so frustrated with the thing. You can't really bash it, and you can't argue with it. But there's just this sort of nameless, well, anger is the only word for it. Just anger at the universe for mistreating you in such an intense way in that moment. Running into traffic when you're trying to get somewhere and you can't get there in time. Showing up for an appointment, and the appointment was shifted, but they didn't tell you about it. Um... I was at the YMCA, there's two pools, there's the warm pool and then there's the colder water pool and they're right next to each other. And sometimes if the warm pool gets crowded, I'll slip out of the warm one and I'll slip into the cold one. Well, now there's a rule about entering that pool from that side. So I've slipped out and I'm standing there about to go in and the lifeguard says, hey, you can't go in there. And I just said, you're kidding, you know. (laughs) You're kidding. Nope, the rule is you have to walk around and go to the other end. I stood there for a really long time, and I then finally I was going to talk to the person who I would have to share the lane with, so I bent down, and she thought I was going to just get in the water. Whoa, she got really, you know, made a really loud noise. Everyone in the whole pool looks around to see what's going on, because I was about to slip in the water. Nope, I said, I'm not going to slip in the water. I I did stand there for a long time. What would they do to me if I slipped into the water? (laughs) Later I saw... You know, lack of cooperation with the rules is grounds for for loss of privileges. <laughs> but you know, there was just this impulse. You just want to get, come on, lady. Whether it's mild, moderate, or extreme, but I just wanted to get in the water. She's pushing against me. And you know, how, that. that's just such a, he puts, how does he put it? Such thoughts and impulses are based on ignorance. How did, where did he say it? the jerk of the mind. Never excuse or justify that sudden jerk of the mind. What a phrase as due to any influence but your own ignorance. And you know, it's easy. It was easy for me to justify it, stupid people. I'm just slipping from one pool to the other. What difference does it make? But the mind jerks and you're gone before, I don't know where Swami got that phrase. He puts it in quotes, the sudden jerk of the mind. But that's exactly what it feels like, doesn't it? It's like something happens and you're just without your control. Craving, anger. You know, I, I, the the YMCA is my, like, I'm the most vulnerable at the YMCA. I have no idea why. But I get most freaked out when I'm there. And, uh, you know, I have this, you swim in one of the pools, the lanes are very well defined. In the other one, they're not. But they're, they're marked. I swim like I'm so accurate. I just go, I take this much space. I go back and forth like this. And all of a sudden, somebody's just swimming right where I'm swimming. It's like every time it happens, it's like, I mean, I'm, you could just watch for like two seconds. And I, I never vary. I'm right here. And somebody's just swimming right where I'm swimming. Like, what could you be thinking? And always, almost, almost. I don't respond well. I'd like to say that at least my response is mild, but it's like I want it to be different and it does make me angry. Yeah, you know, It's just like, isn't that weird? I mean, every time I watch it happen, I can't understand, maybe it's because I'm wet or something like that. Maybe it does something to my brain. But it's, it's good practice. And so then I try to slip out of the warm water pool and then the lifeguard won't let me move. So it's just like <laughs> everything conspires. These are completely trivial, ridiculous but they're not at all because in such moments the patterns of your thinking are revealed and it tells you sort of where you're vulnerable and what's still going on. Why? I mean, in in many ways it's worse because what difference does it make? There's absolutely nothing at stake and yet still you discover there's this quality of your own consciousness. That's why he calls it a jerk of the mind and it's not due to any influence but your own ignorance and then the last one which i love is the word infatuation where we just become enamored of something and we you know we're just going to keep wanting that something i had this experience did i tell you that last week i did about that day that i woke up in india and wanted to go shopping uh-huh. it wasn't that i mentioned that last week i was just i was i was infatuated with the things i was going to buy and because i was infatuated with my own desires and what i wanted to shop I lost relationship to, to the things that were most important to me. I was blinded by infatuation just for, you know, more. What I was going to buy in India was just more of what I already had. But the whole day was guided by that. Um, and when, you, when you're infatuated, um, your sense of proportion is all mixed up. Like, how important is this? But if you really are infatuated with something, your sense of values gets gets out of whack. And you can be infatuated with people or things or your own ideas or the way things have to be and you, you just can't tell. And Sri Teshwar, remember, in his... in the autobiography, he talks about his infatuation with an ugly dog. And that, in, to his mind, it was just the best dog in the world and there was no way to tell him that it wasn't so. So our judgment also, we commit violence against common sense because we become infatuated with something. You can always tell... And you see, many people consider infatuation to be a desirable state. A lot of people who have a lot of difficulty in relationships because they love the feeling of being infatuated and after infatuation passes and they're just wherever they are and it's just a normal relationship, they crave the intensity of that infatuation again in which all judgment is lost. But here in Patanjali, he's presenting it to us as an undesirable Condition, And it's worth remembering when we find our judgment is distorted um, because we become infatuated with some particular idea. Uh, Sarah? It's on, and speak close to it. I don't know if you can answer the question, but I get angry very easily at the drop of a hat, and I know it. But what do you think is left over from other lives that caused that? you have any idea? could it be anything well the habit is what well, everything comes down to a lack of faith in god if conditions are not what you want them to be and you react violently to those conditions it's because somehow you've posited your preferences against what god has actually given you and it's really it's really divine mother that you're angry with because if it wasn't right why would it be given to you if it wasn't a, If it wasn't a cause for gratitude and blessing, why would it be given to you? I mean, I like the word challenge. You might not like something, but it's it, what 's given to you is a challenge it's not good or bad. Some things are more challenging than others that they're not as it's not as effortless to meet them, but that doesn't mean they're bad they're just more challenging. more energy is required. I think it's a habit too it's just It's just simply nothing but a habit, and the more you do it, the more the vritti becomes strong and the more the inclination to go there just keeps running. And so that's why you have to, um, you have to consider no such response as insignificant. Not, no, no, no angry response is insignificant. There's no situation in which anger is ever going to help you. Even if you're all alone, even if there's nothing at stake. Because every time you do it, you just carve the groove deeper and deeper in your mind that circumstances are not what they should be and I want them to be different and you commit an act of violence the only thing you can do is persevere and, and it, when there's a sudden jerk of the mind due to any, that is not due to any influence but my own ignorance and just you know wow what do I expect to accomplish by this and you just watch it and try to unravel it and then try to back up and start over and at least make it as little as you can yeah, but there's no, um, I mean, last week what I talked about, I was talking about the curse of the Rishis and how the books are filled with how these great souls um, become angry and change the whole plot and then have to go off to the mountains and do penance for another hundred years because they've spent all their, all their uh, 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 whatever the word is, they've, all their tapas, they've, sp- they've spent all the, all the power that they've gained in one big blast so the other side of it is, well, this is what happens. He's also saying that this is what happens. But how long do we want to go on like this? It's really just our own question. How long do I want to go on like this? And Shivani was fond of saying, and I always loved it, she said, you will never, ever, ever give up equality until you're absolutely disgusted with it. So it's one thing to sort of mildly say, I want to be different. And it's quite another to find a continuation of that state of consciousness unbearable. I mean, I have noticed, I remember when I was holding a grudge against someone. I think it was an incarnation's old grudge, but I had plenty of evidence in this life to be grudgy about. And I just had, just one day when I was meditating, because on one hand I was really tired of my negative attitude, but it just didn't go away, and I just meditated deeply, and I really had to admit that I enjoyed it. I just liked the... um, I liked that others were wrong. You know, I wanted somebody else to be at fault besides me. It was just really simple. I wanted everyone to say, I'm sorry, you're the one who's right. And anger's like that. I want people to, remember when I told you when I dropped the flashlight on my foot and I called the clinic and I ended up talking to Jack Wallace about whether my foot was broken and all I really wanted was somebody to feel sorry for me, which he did extremely well. You know, he was just overwhelming with pity and, as if my injury was just the most important thing that had happened really in many, many weeks in terms of the whole medical business of the entire clinic. I mean, of course, it was so exaggerated, but that was pretty much exactly what I wanted. So what is it we're trying to accomplish when we get angry? We want things to be different, but we also want, somehow we want to be justified. We want to have the right to just blow out and not have to do it anymore. I mean, when I was considering why I was holding this grudge, I just wanted to be right. I wanted someone else to be wrong. I wanted to stand taller than the people that I was annoyed with. I mean, none of it was—none um, of it was good, that's for sure. But it helped me to be to be honest and just say, you know, I like having this bad attitude. It, it, it's working for me. I mean, after that, I was able to get over it a little bit more. But it was working for me. And getting angry, somehow it's working for you. It's hard to ask, what is it? You know, anything craving, anger, infatuation, it's working for us in one way or another. We like it more than the alternative. Sometimes the alternative is to have to really face a a profound and horrible disappointment. So I'll just stay angry. I'll just keep wanting it to be different because... I can't bear what's really here. I, um, the, in marriage, there's the concept called the seven-year itch, which is kind of a joke where marriages break up after seven years, somebody gets restless. I actually have observed the, the seven-year cycle, five to seven years. I've seen it in couples that I've worked with, which is it takes about that long for infatuation to completely go away. That doesn't mean that love goes away, but infatuation disappears. And as long as you're infatuated, you really are not quite sure who you're actually married to. And then after about five to seven years, just one day, it just dawns on you, just, I I call it the thunk point. It's like you've been floating and then all of a sudden you just, and then you're looking at whoever your partner is and you're realizing, wow, this is really it. And this one is really whoever they are. And there's a lot of panic that sets in at that point. Because prior to that, you were infatuated and you didn't quite know. And it's not even like the person is terrible. It's just that your back, your happiness is really your responsibility. Infatuation kind of blinds you to the fact that your own happiness is your own responsibility. And that's also part of what happens is just the reality that no matter how much I love this person, even if you still do, even if you still like them a lot, your, your happiness is still your own responsibility. And that's when people often break up their relationships and go start it all over again. Because if I can be infatuated again, then I don't have to actually really take responsibility. How is this working for you? Oh, that's what I get to avoid. Responsibility. Or the just incredibly dull necessity to deal with the situation in front of you. I mean, anger is easier. It's just, it's not working. So I'll just get mad about it instead of the patient application of willpower required to make it work. Which is usually so tiring. I'm a little cynical tonight. If I get a little cynical, just kind of like, I don't know, wave your hands like this and remind me, or go... <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> okay? <laughs>
1: This is related. I find myself, um, I was reflecting on some relationships with people and certain people who have this, from my standpoint, this habitual um, way of becoming angry. They just kind of turn to anger and it just happens in a flash. Uh This was a few different people and I noticed I'd engendered this anger. And my response was just to be indignant that they would, just get so angry with me, and so unwilling to step back and talk it out, try to understand—you know, just that sort of thing—where you're, you're there together, and then all of a sudden they're somewhere else, and my, perhaps, I, I mean, not just indignation, but just um, un, uh, not understanding how to deal with it, really.
0: Well. I think the choice you've taken is really probably the least effective possible. Yes. Which is um, to try to change them. I mean, that's what you're telling me, is that I try to change them. I mean, it's perfectly fair to offer that, but if their agitated energy is uh, triggers agitated energy in you then it's entirely your problem at that point and it really doesn't matter what they're doing they could be doing anything in the whole universe and it has nothing to do with your problem now and your problem is not them your problem is that this kind of energy makes me indignant what am i indignant about i desire them to be different i'm angry that they're not the way like me I I desire them to be open to my advice. I mean, there's a thousand things, all of which, why are you indignant? It's their reality. What does that really have to do with you? It's an unpleasant reality, but it's much worse for them than it is for you. But if it can trigger in you, you you have become exactly like them. Yeah, you're just exactly like them. So it's a good exercise in... Something else. What he proposes is think the opposite thoughts. I mean, that's all that Patanjali proposes here. Somebody is angry with you, and you start the peace and harmony prayer going in your mind. You know, Om Guru, Om Guru, God bless you. May you have a peaceful and wonderful life, calmness, whatever. Uh, one of those wonderful chants. You know, on um, that chant. Um, those words which I started to play and couldn't remember the notes, God's love, God's love flows purely through me. I actually put the words to that melody after this woman made me so upset. I was so upset. She was, I was justified in this in the most abstract sense. <laughs> uh, let us phrase it differently. She, was, The other lady was not behaving well. But I really let her get to me and I really let her have it. And I was really wrong. Just so wrong. And I went upstairs trying to calm down. And that's when I started singing those words to that melody. God's love flows purely through me from darkness and doubt. Forever I'm free. I sang it for a really, really long time. Because I wasn't. Well, you have to really take it to the marrow of your bones. That when there is a sudden jerk of the mind, it's not due to anything except my own ignorance. And all the details of what this person did are absolutely irrelevant. I mean, you have to say that. Not even mildly irrelevant. Their willingness, their unwillingness, their failure, their this, my innocence. They're absolutely irrelevant. It just has nothing to do with the situation. They did whatever they did, and I got upset. And I got upset is the only issue. And you have to really take that so much farther down than most people are willing to take that. In the particular position that I've been in for so many years, and in your position too as a minister and as a senior devotee, this is my mantra. I am always responsible if there's disharmony. I am the one who must make it work. I don't care what they do. I must make it work. And I think it's a good mantra for anyone. It's been somewhat forced upon me because in the position that I'm in, I have to define my responsibility somehow and I must make it work. If the person in the end will not, you know, will not accept what I'm putting out, that's their choice. I can't force them to. But I have to bring my energy into the reality where it's not because I am behaving improperly. And if you have an inclination toward that, then God will send you lots of fools. He'll just send you an endless number of angry fools so that you can always be right and be absolutely wrong.
1: It's desire that's thwarted on my part because I want them to Thwart be different. To desire.
0: You want yeah. them to be different.
1: And Master talked about this idea of, you know, sort of, Lowering your gaze and apologizing in essence. I'm sorry if I angered you.
0: Well, I love the way Paula apologized on her deathbed. I've always regretted that you got your feelings hurt. She never said, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings because it wasn't her fault and she knew it. I always regretted that you got your feelings hurt. It was perfectly phrased. I understand why you feel that way. It hurts me to see you so upset
1: it but offers sympathy?
0: Well, it depends. Sometimes you can't offer sympathy. You can't do anything because you're not really offering sympathy. You're trying to be superior. You have to really, you have to be out of, somebody, when somebody's upset, their radar is 100% and they can smell hypocrisy. They can smell condescension. So unless, unless your response is a genuine, spontaneous, compassion for their misery don't insult them by pretending
1: and that's what i've been told in response
0: yeah so you don't you mean i've learned gradually because i always have words that many people don't have words and many people don't expect you to have words and i've learned i learned this a lot from david who's just a master of not speaking because he really knows there is nothing good to say. So he just doesn't clog the airwaves with um, hypocrisy or trivia. He just goes silent. Because you really are not going to add to the situation with speech. I've watched him do it many times. It took me a long time to just realize, well, that really, his silence works a lot better than my words. Because there's nothing nice to say. You know?
1: Learning to simply have comfort within yeah. You know, if, 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 if I have an habitual response of indignation, for instance, it's to pull back from that and
0: mm-hmm.
1: a- allow it to be, just simply and allow it to be. And I think
0: perhaps a lot of the time you should run away. I think you just look at this and you say, well, wow, this is bigger than me. I am now hanging up the telephone. I am now shutting the door in your face. I am now walking out of the room. And let them be upset because if you stay there, it will get worse. I was on the phone once with someone who was just really, really upset, and, and I'm just sitting on the phone, and I just, the power of hanging up just occurred to me, and I thought, oh. <laughs> and I just did it, when it rang again, I didn't answer it. I just went about my life, and you know, later on, there were a little hoo-ha about it, but I knew what I was doing. It was just definitely, by far, the best thing to do. Because what's worse, you know, you have to protect your own consciousness at that point.
1: Looking at it to protect my own consciousness, yeah. to disengage and protect Just my consciousness.
0: Just disengage because almost... See, if you're not absolutely clean, you should do nothing. Yeah, if you're not absolutely clean, you should do nothing. Yes?
1: Could you clarify what you said a couple of minutes ago about um, having responsibility for the harmony because we're talking about not being able to control everybody else, only ourselves, but the harmony depends on everybody that's involved in a situation. So how did you mean the responsibility there? That's a
0: good, that's a very good, I'm glad you asked that to clarify that. It's never their fault, it's always my fault. If somebody gets, I mean, mean, I'm taking that a little far, let me stand back a little bit. And I do understand, this is one of the ways over many years I've disciplined my own mind. This is how I've dealt with the fact that sometimes I'm not wrong, and sometimes they are wrong, but I feel that because it's good for me, and also because I have been given a responsibility to sort of move the whole crowd forward, that I need to preserve positive relationships with everyone, and that's much more important than any of the details. You know, people sometimes say the damnedest things to me, you know? Things that could be uh, really insulting if I wanted to take them that way or just grossly inappropriate. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to make everyone paranoid here, but, you know, over the course of 40 years, there have been some really humorous moments where people are trying to say something to me and they don't really hear what they're saying. I mean, some of them I have spoken of, like when people, one when man, when man, well, the man who told me that he just really couldn't stand to listen to me talk, that other people found me inspiring, but he didn't at all. And and I was clean in that one. I just felt so sorry for him, really. You poor man, because I'm talking all the time. It must be so unbearable for you. And that was completely clean. And then another man said to me, you know, you can lift people to a certain point, but after that, nothing happens. (laughs) And I said, yeah, like, sure, I never pretended to be more than I am. It's like you projected that on me and they were disappointed, but this is really has nothing to do with me. But I didn't finish that. I just said, but I was clean. It was like there was no part of me that needed to fight against him. But there have been other times when somebody is giving something to me and a great deal of me wants to explain to them exactly why that is the wackiest, most wrong idea that I have ever heard. And even if it is, though, what is going to help this situation? And I I don't feel, except in very rare circumstances, that I need to be heard. You know? I'm perfectly clear in what I think and feel. I don't need to be heard. There was a time in my life when I needed to be heard. So it's partly what I'm saying, Tandava. Somebody's talking to me, and I don't need to be heard. They need to be heard, and then I have to think, very calmly, how to move the situation forward. And I just, you, you can't, if you're in a position of leadership, let's just talk about leadership, if you're in a position of leadership, you just don't have the luxury of having your own feelings about things. You can have them, you shouldn't be dishonest, and sometimes you can't hold, you know, sometimes it's, you just have to be sincere. But you always have to think very carefully, what are the consequences of my behavior? That's the great karmic blessing of leadership is that you you are disciplined out of your likes and dislikes and i've been severely disciplined out of my likes and dislikes over the course of 30 some years you know i was i was extremely partial when i started i just i like some people more than others i was more in tune with them their personalities please me their temperaments please me their gender please me you know just all kinds of things and then people would point out to me oh know you're just going according to it so gradually i just backed up and felt see also there's another principle here that swami always kept in the swamiji always had to preserve the relationship with people it didn't and, and sometimes he would ask others of us to deliver bad news to someone because he did not want to be seen as the deliverer of bad news he always wanted to be the comforter because it really didn't matter what people did as long as they could keep that connection to him. If they lost that connection, they lost everything, and maybe even for incarnations. So that's the other thing that that you sometimes have to think about if you're in a position where people um, regard you in some way as a spiritual link. You have to do your very best at all times to preserve that relationship. And you have to let a lot of other things go. And you really have to let go your own need to be heard. Swamiji once, this was many years ago, uh, 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 some friends took him on a trip to Hawaii and paid for his trip in order to have his company. And one woman was, this is somebody who's just passed through Ananda and went away. So it's not anybody that anybody knows. She was, I don't know what, she thought she was sincere. And she made a big show of being sincere, but she wasn't really open at all and she was constantly sort of asking Swami to correct her and give her advice and so on. But the fact of the matter was, he couldn't touch it. He just couldn't say a thing to her because she was just defensive and oversensitive. And So it was, a, it was happening on two levels. So he went on this trip. He was gone for ten days or something. And then Seva and I picked him up at the airport. And we were driving back to Ananda village. And he started criticizing. First he started criticizing Seva, then he started criticizing me just kind of randomly. You're driving too fast. Why don't you watch what you're doing? You know, could you please speak up, Asha? Why are you talking like this? Why are you bringing this subject up to me? It was just kind of after us. And for some reason, Seva and I were both utterly untouched, just completely untouched. In fact, there was something quietly amusing about it. And after 15 minutes or so, he sort of exhaled and he said, I've been holding it in for so long. <laughs> This woman had been just been so hard and it was so hard just to keep his mouth shut. There was so much he could have said and he just let it out on us and we could feel that but it didn't really have anything to do with us. He just needed to vent and then we all relaxed and laughed and everything was fine again. But he just, he couldn't. He just couldn't um, say what he would say because it just would have been too hurtful to her. It was his responsibility to maintain the relationship. And I didn't know if it would have helped her. It wasn't that he couldn't have said anything, but he he knew it wouldn't help her at all. Does that make sense, Tandima? Leadership is not all it's cracked up to be. People think leadership is the one who gets to do everything, gets it their way all the time. It's exactly the opposite. The leader gets no freedom, zero, none. And that's the fantastic, wonderful, good karma of it. You're just about everybody else. And every one of you should be a leader. Because every one of us is Master's disciple, and every one of us at every time should be thinking: How can I be? If Master were standing here, what would He do for this person? If Swamiji were standing here, what would He do for this person? We should never think what would I do, because we know what we would do, and it ain't pretty, you know. We need to be who they are, as close as we can come. You're know, always praying to be a channel. What do you think it means? It means to put yourself aside. Yes.
1: How is that different or isn't it different when you're interacting with people who are devotees for whom you are a spiritual link versus the people at the Y who...
0: I can't really think of any difference. You know, except sometimes at, and because I don't have relationships, I, I've tried to think of it as different. <laughs> I've tried. In fact, it's It's worse. Because no one at the YMCA is the slightest bit interested in what I have to say. It was like my mother. My mother said, I, did she actually say it like this? I don't want to put words into her mouth. But it was something in essence, which is, you know, we're not really that interested in your opinion. We know that some people listen to you, but we're not going to. <laughs> it was something real, real close to that. And I just, I looked at them and I laughed. You know, this was, again, I was perfectly clean. I laughed and I laughed. I said, oh, how relaxing. I said, so many people take me so seriously. What a pleasure to be in a place where I'm just disregarded. It's just like, wow, what fun. I and mean, I really just took it that way. Exactly. So I'm at the Y and, you know, what did they care? In fact, I was extreme. I had this little war going on with this woman who kept playing the music so loud. And I went to complain to her but I, about her, which I had done, it had become quite personal. See, I have this little scene going on there, it had become quite personal for a whole lot of reasons. So, but I felt badly about this, so I actually tracked down a manager. And I said, you know, frankly, this whole situation is much more important to her than it is to me. So I feel that the behavior is not right and the management ought to look into it, but I'm not gonna do that if that's gonna jeopardize her position. You know, because she just, it just, from what I'd seen over the last, I've been there for like 15 years, you know, this is a central part of her reality. I just slip in the water and go home. He said, don't worry, you're not, you know, you're not the only one and she's not going to lose her job. So I said, okay, so here's my position. (laughs) And then I told her, but if he had told me, you know, anything else, I would have just been quiet and gone home. Because it is not, I'm not responsible for the why at all. Yes. Um, I'd like to go back to the jerk phenomenon and uh, <clears throat> also what Stephen was talking about. Not the jerk as a noun, but the <laughs> jerk as a verb. Yeah, yeah I'm just oh, joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We never actually used jerk as a noun, but it was implied. <laughs> go ahead. I don't know if I spaced out and just <clears throat> missed something you said. But uh, when he was talking about, you know, presented with this thing, don't... Don't respond in kind, uh, essentially. So, okay, so say if you do that, um, that initial energy is still inside. How do you dissipate that without just letting it fester? There's a difference between... Oil. There's a difference between... uh, Just a second, there's a piece of this I wanted to have. Just somebody remind me, I wanted to quote something out of the Ask Asha book, so I'll I'll come back to that. Um, There's a difference between disciplining your energy and suppressing it. And that's what you have to realize. To suppress it is to think, I'm a good guy, I'm not really mad at you, I'm just trying to help you. That's why I was saying, you've got to be absolutely clean. I'm really just concerned about you because you're so upset. And the person can tell you're not just concerned about me you're mad yourself and you know you're just suppressing because you you just are not capable or willing to admit what you really feel and that's when I was saying I don't have a need to be heard because I know what I feel I'm not I'm not lost in my feelings I've, I've worked through a lot of that and I'm not by no means am I perfect but this is hard one for me to be able to say that I used to not know what I felt, and therefore I had to speak it because I had to find out what I felt. It was the only way I could tell. What I'm talking about is you're just objectively looking at it. You see yourself becoming so annoyed, but then you have the presence of mind to say, Is this really worth it? Or upset or sad. You, then you have the presence of mind to know what you're feeling and then be able to make a reasoned and, you know, an appropriate, reasoned and intuitive judgment about what to do about what you feel. And that's the difference. And you don't, you don't have to let things out. In fact, it says in here, the more you repeat these actions, it's, it's a completely false teaching where people get, they, they don't understand transcendent self-discipline versus suppression. They don't understand that those are very different things. And so everybody thinks that any kind of restraint is suppression, which is not healthy. But conscious self-discipline is the best thing in the world that you can do. And yes, you have to do something positive and creative with your energy. That's a fact. But you you can't just always be disciplined and nothing else. You have to find a way to lift your consciousness and free, free yourself from the tension. That chant that I mentioned, the words to that chant that I wrote, that was it. I was so upset with the person I'd interacted with I was so upset with myself for just losing my cool. I went upstairs and I, I made up a song. And I played it for a really long time until it, it calmed me down. Until I could see, see it more calmly. See her more calmly, see myself more calmly. I couldn't just go back to work as normal. It was way, the system was way too blown out. So I mean, certainly all of us have taken a long walk around the block I myself throw myself into the swimming pool kind of on a regular basis. Throwing myself into the swimming pool is a really good idea. Get yourself strong, rhythmic breathing going. That'll calm you down. Yeah. And sometimes you go to a safe place. I mean, I was uh, having a conversation with a woman about the man she's living with and the difficulties and this and this. I said, that's why you need girlfriends. (laughs) You know? You go tell your girlfriends. You don't tell your husband. Because it's not going to help him and you need to get it off your chest. So you just say it to your girlfriend. She listens to you. She says, there, there. And you say, Phew, I feel better. And then you go back. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, yes.
1: This is tangential. But what is this inclination that some women have to speak to a man as if you are one of their girlfriends? See, and I mean that seriously because I've encountered this and I'm thinking why are you saying these things to me? I wouldn't, I just, you know, this, I just like, I never have conversations like this with anybody. Why would you even talk to me about those sorts of things?
0: I was, I went, I rode home from Ananda Village once with a woman I had just met. Literally, she gave me a ride home, you know, somewhere around Vallejo. We were way into the story. I turned to her and I said, our husbands would be so appalled. You know, what's in the car stays in the car. It was just like, I don't know, women are crazy. I'm one of them. We just...
1: I don't mean to offend you, but I'm not one of your girlfriends, and you should say this to one of them.
0: Um, I think you should be flattered. No, I mean, seriously, because you obviously have enough androgyny that they haven't noticed that you're not one of their girlfriends, and I consider that to be a compliment. When Swamiji wrote that book, remember, Secrets of Women, and he went into the feminine consciousness for three days. And when he came out of it, he said, I don't mean to offend you, but I was completely in feminine consciousness. It is terrible. <laughs> How do you all stand it? It's just what he said. Every once in a while I've seen Swami because, of course, this is something I wasn't able to see, which was what was he like when he was just with men. But every so often, I sort of from a distance or when there would be a group and it would just end up being the men around him and I'd be a little farther away. He was so different. I was It was actually really interesting. You, you, it was a certain, you know, now it's just us and we don't have to relate to them. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of God's weird little tricks is all I can think of. You know, this male-female thing is so... I, th- there's that book, which I listened to in the audio book. I, not all of it, but it was, it was an amazing book title, it was called. It is a book title. It's a well-known book. Um, why Men Don't Have a Clue and Women Always Need More Shoes. <laughs> and it was written by a couple. It wasn't written by a woman. It was by a man and a woman. And why men don't have a clue why women are so wacky. And that's what he meant. He didn't mean that men are clueless in life, but they're just clueless as to what could she possibly be thinking? And one of the things he's clueless about is why she always needs more shoes, which all women know why they always need more shoes. You know, you just do. It's just one of those things. Craziness, who knows? All right. Okay, let's pause for a few minutes, then we'll come back. Um, Tom pointed out something that I, I think is really worth pointing out. Um, he says, um, when he's talking about in, in 234, w- the whole thing we've been talking about, acts of violence, craving, anger, infatuation, are all based on ignorance and are certain to cause one pain. And he refers us back to Sutra number two, four, and number two, five, in which he defines the word ignorance. And I'll read two, five here. Ignorance is the conviction that what is impermanent is permanent that what is impure is pure, that what is painful is pleasant, and that that which is the non-self, the ego, is the true self. And so all of this craving, anger, infatuation, is all based on ignorance, and that ignorance is that we misperceive reality. And that, you know, this is... I know at the time we spent a lot of time on these, but Tom was pointing out that Now he's using the word ignorance and he's using it in an extremely exact way because he's already defined it for us. And then he also, in number two, four, he says, ignorance is the field on which all imperfections thrive. And so whatever it is that we're responding to, it's because we're ignorant. That's why we're responding that way. Uh, When I was uh, thinking about Tandava's question about being responsible for making the relationships work which I was attributing to the responsibilities that I have. and But then I was trying to extend it to all of you. We all have that same responsibility. We're responsible for making it work because that serves us to do that. It's not really a question of our external job. It's that it's always our fault in the sense that I, am, I need to be master of my own consciousness and I need to not just be thinking about what I need. Of course, we have limits and I've Balanced all that conversation out many different times. You can only go as far as you can go. But um, let me just find this thought. Oh yes, you see, with Swamiji, he he always had sympathy for our ignorance. Um, he 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 had that wonderful phrase. I understand why you feel that way. And it wasn't he wasn't just it wasn't like a convenient trick. It was that he really did understand why we feel that way. And so that it wasn't hard for him to then try to reach out, given that we feel this way, let him try to help us to elevate the way we feel. And if he couldn't help us, like talking about that woman in Hawaii who kept asking him for advice that he knew he, she would never take and wouldn't help him, um, it wasn't like he would always help her, would, it wasn't like he would always offer something, but he would always stop and think, How can I help this situation? And there was no, there was no technique. I remember someone came to Swami once and they'd read in a book somewhere that if you're going to have to correct someone, first tell them two good things that they've done before you tell them one bad. And Swami listened, uh, you know, respectfully. And then he said, that's so manipulative. And then he said, and any sensitive person will see through it right away. And, of course, it's not really terrible advice, but for Swamiji, it was so manipulative. And oftentimes, if he had something strong to say to you, he would just say it straight out. But what made it okay was that you knew that he really loved you and wanted to help you. His inner position was absolutely clean. He wouldn't insult you by saying you're such a nice person and you do so many things well, except you really messed up in this area he would just say, you really need to work on this. Because it was the given. He'd already made you feel like you were a wonderful person or a valuable person or had the possibility of success or whatever it was. I mean, if it was appropriate, he would also say nice things, but he never did it just because it was a technique. And that's, that's what I'm saying about, we, we can't always be spontaneously right. So we sometimes have to think about what's the best I can do in this. But sincerity is absolutely essential. People are not fooled. Then you get into a big argument about you because they can tell. I've never known anyone to be fooled. Um, now I wanted to comment about the, the, from the book, some, a question I remembered. There was a man who wrote there, and some of you may have read this already, um he t- he talked about a bitter divorce has devolved into guerrilla warfare he tells this whole horrible story about a cus- you know divorce with children involved and his wife really um using the children to get at him and it just sounded really horrible um but he was also talking about how the whole thing was making him angry and afraid and i was pointing out to him in the letter that even though he was not behaving as badly as her, he was still on the same wire. He was still on the same line. Because what was her energy? Her energy, she was afraid and she was angry. And he was afraid and he was angry. So it was a matter of degree, perhaps, in how it was being expressed in regard for the children. But they were still in the same place. And that the only way he was ever going to get out of this is to really get out of that place. And of course, it was very difficult. I didn't in any way tell him that that would be easy. But don't fool yourself. If you're responding with the same vibration, that's why it's happening to you. And until you're, you're, you're really out of that vibration, I mean, this, you know, bad things still happen to good people. But I, I observed in my life that I used to be more susceptible to anger And I realized that when people got angry at me, I tended to get angry back at them. I didn't, I didn't necessarily initiate anger, but I realized that when I felt anger towards someone, almost always they were angry at me, that I was still vulnerable. I could just, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to overstate that because I'm not that free. But I really began to, I'd I'd feel this kind of causeless anger sometimes, and I realized somebody was projecting it to me, that was their feeling. Almost always it was a, it was a, a real wake up call for me because wow, if, I, if somebody flashes that vibration to me and I just dive right into it, whoa, that is something to be really concerned about, and of course that's also an explanation of why these things happen. When I wrote to that man, I said, "Look, the only weapon you have here is your own consciousness, and you're using it wrongly you're not going to win on that level you're just going to perpetuate it. your only freedom in this." is to free your consciousness from the response that you're having. And for the sake of your children, for the sake of the whole situation, as long as that woman or life itself can, can find that vibration in you, that vibration is going to keep coming to you. And only when you're not home to that anymore will you ever be out of this. And so that's why when we're vulnerable we have to run away, that's what Master said. Yeah, he said, if a test is bigger than you can meet successfully, run away. I love that. It's one of my favorite pieces of advice that he gave. Yeah? Yeah, just turn around and run in the other direction. I, I, I remember, I'll, I'll use his name because I don't think he'll mind, but this was something I watched Haridas do. Haridas always was aware that his consciousness was his primary responsibility and if a situation was going in such a way that he could feel his own consciousness slipping, or, or if he felt the room, the consciousness of the room was slipping, he would often, if we were having a meeting and he felt the energy was getting a little off, he would take over the meeting, often in ways that appeared to be non-sequiturs. You know, if we're talking about a certain something, maybe people are getting crabby or a little anxious or a little um, critical of someone, then often he would just, inter- you know, just take over the meeting, And he would sometimes just take it off in another direction, which for a very linear person like me would be annoying. But I I began to think that there was something else happening. And I watched him. He would take the meeting until the consciousness was fixed. And he would usually fix it himself by just getting the energy right. And then when the energy in the room was right, he'd release it again. (laughs) He was never... He wasn't watching what we were doing. He was watching our vibrations. And he had a... He was very... either generously concerned for us or a very protective of his own vibrations and he didn't want to be in a place where the vibrations were off. It was actually really quite something. And I'm not at all sure he knew he was doing it. He would just feel that things were not going where they needed to be and he would just instinctively bring them back to where they needed to be. there's just so many different ways to live in this world. We have these very narrow ideas, these very this follows this follows this follows this and it must be like this and this is what i think and phew, doesn't matter at all what really matters is um where we are in the spirit it's just all that matters it's it's you know swamiji was not he didn't calculate he just responded he'd feel it he'd sense it and he'd respond to that it wasn't he wasn't linear he was definitely not premeditated yeah
1: With Harry Dust perhaps it really didn't matter so much whether uh, what he was aware of or whether he was just doing it for himself. The effect was he was helping everyone's consciousness.
0: Exactly. He was helping everyone's consciousness. And he just, he was very sensitive to, to wrong vibrations. And then he would fix them. I was sometimes very sensitive to getting the decision made and getting the project done. And uh, that in itself was the wrong vibration. <laughs> I remember once we had this meeting with Swami Swamiji. Well, those of us who are present all really remember it. I don't think I don't think we built the expanding, maybe we were just thinking about building the expanding light rooms or we were talking about building a new temple. And we started just talking about what the temple could be like and we ended up building a you know, a crystal window and we had gemstones around it and we just just really let our imaginations run and really thought about what would be wonderful. Afterwards, Swami said, it was the best meeting we had ever had. And he referred to it for a long time because nobody was censoring. Nobody had a sense of limitation. Everybody just really allowed ourselves to uh, think without criticism simultaneously. I don't know, somehow the mood just shifted. We were always, always um, preventing things from happening by being so... um, concerned about the details and for some reason that day it just sort of started and we just went in an extremely uncharacteristic fashion and and just really allowed ourselves to, you know, go into the astral world and think out what it would really, what it really could be like. Unfortunately, we never translated that into anything that was possible but I think if we had we would have come up with much more imaginative ideas than we normally come up with. Because when you start with all your limitations... You, you can't open yourself to the possible in the same way. You can always bring it down afterwards. But if you never get to the top of the mountain, nothing ever happens. I mean, that's a, a balancing act. But, I, you know, he was really trying to teach us something, which I'm not really entirely certain we learned. But it certainly made a vivid impression. Because not one of us would have praised that meeting thought it was a fantasy session he called it the best brainstorming session we'd ever had i mean seriously so it was like wow well what was different was that we really allowed ourselves to imagine instead of stopping it because that was the once when we were talking about prosperity and he said you know everybody makes everybody whatever the word is I don't know what word he used exactly, but they don't respect the fact when I say that we're going to have 250 people for Spiritual Renewal Week this year. He said, and they just think I'm out of touch. He said, but if I didn't say that we'd have 250, we wouldn't even have the 30 that do come. (laughs) Meaning that we're always cutting his energy off by our small-mindedness. And so on one occasion, we were not small-minded, and he commended us for that. Makes sense? That's how Swami creates. He's, he was completely unlimited in his creation. He would—he thought everything was possible. And so therefore... I mean, when you really look at Ananda, all of this was impossible, is impossible. But he, he never thought it. He always thought it could be done. Really, he always knew it could be done. And so there was just this unlimited flow from him. Grounded, but expansive. That's the line that you walk. And when in the later context when it was the issue of uh, the, the lawsuit that we were in which was such a disaster in which the whole jury was against us the whole time and every morning Swami would tell us that today was our lucky day and everything was going to turn our way today and every morning we would remind him that there wasn't a chance in the world that that was going to happen that yesterday was terrible and today would be worse and we wanted to make sure before we left the house that he understood that. Yeah, like what were we thinking? And on the very last day, the last day, I finally got it. That, you know, the only hope of the situation was to put out dynamic positive energy. And we were so careful to make sure that we didn't never had any. So later, months later, I said that to him, Swamiji, we were constantly... you Every morning you'd come down trying to lift our vibrations. And every day we'd make sure that we, we didn't lift our vibrations at all. Isn't that what was going on? Yeah. He said like that. I said, but isn't there... Because especially in that lawsuit situation, I said, "So many people who tried to be positive were actually afraid to confront the reality of what was going on, and their positivity, their af- it was an affirmation to cover their fear." Yes, he said, and I said, "So it's really like a fine line, isn't it?" Uh huh, he said. "You really have to know. You really have to know what you're doing." Is how he put it. He said, "You have to really know what you're doing. It's a fine line to say, even you know that nothing's going well." And and sometimes people will say, "Oh, it's going fine. Everything is fine," but it's not really like they're affirming a higher reality. They're terrified of the reality in front of them, so they're trying to affirm something over here. That's suppression. This is fear, and you're trying to cover the fear. With this other thing, that's not the same as... This is a very difficult situation. Everything is, is really hard here. The only possibility we have is to bring to bear on this a power greater, a power of light greater than the power of darkness. And that was what he was always trying to get us to do, even with our thoughts and our energy. And we were very conscientious. I'll speak for myself. This is... I, 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 I certainly... I, maybe I led the charge. Maybe others in the room had a more dynamic attitude than I did. But I certainly was not at all able to take what he said in the spirit that he intended it. And I had to feel conscientiously that I had to correct him. It was a very, very good lesson. It comes up later in here. Um, One of these. Oh, yes, in fact, it's, it's 236, which will be in a week or so. We go back to the concept of truth, and we talk about it then. Yes, Stephen. I did answer it. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Um, I I answered while I was not letting him ask it. I was answering it apparently. Okay. If there are no more, then I think we are done. So we finished 234 today. And next week we'll go to 235.